Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining me here on this, uh, the first episode for 2022 of the Fifth Estate Podcast. Uh, this one's a little bit of a holdover from last year. Uh, time got away from me uh, before I could uh, publish it. I thought I'd hold off um, rather than publishing over the silly season, that uh, break where no one does anything. Um, so yeah, here it is. Um, this was recorded last year, but uh, being published now. So this is episode three of, um, or part three of uh, podcast that I did with Robin Tudor. So anyway, without further ado, let's get on with the show. And here we are again with for uh, what's his part three now with Robin Tudor. Um, good afternoon, Robin. How are you? I'm good, thanks, Cameron. I hope your listeners aren't getting sick of me yet. No, we have so many things to talk about. Yes, the feedback I've been getting has been um, very positive. Uh, there, the the comments that I've had have been that um, you know, my God, why aren't we hearing this from other people? Why are they just talking about protests and and all that sort of stuff? Uh, and, you know, I, I think that, you know, with what I try to do when I do my mo- normal monologues is to get information out that um, other people may not be aware of. Uh, and, you know, it's sometimes it's good to listen to the same person, but then other times it's good to listen to a conversation. Um, so, you know, while people are still saying, yep, bring her on, um, I'm happy for you to come back. Um, and obviously, happy to come back. Yep. yep thank totally. you. Um, obviously, if they start saying, no, get, you know, get rid of her, well, I'll make that decision <laughs> myself. <laughs> no, I, I'll still make that decision. I mean, because, you know, we know um, public opinion is a fickle thing. Uh, mm-hmm. What, you know, what can be good one day, people might not want to hear one day, but then down, down the track will be, oh, why don't you tell me about that? Oh. Yeah, that's exactly right. And and that's the thing. I mean, I think a lot of people are just not ready to hear, you might say, the biggest story, like the, the story lurking underneath the story. Uh, there's, I, I would say there's actually more and more people who are now ready to hear that, that the majority of people, even those who have a lot of suspicions about the story that we have been told, are still kind of sticking their fingers in their ears and going, la, 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 you know, don't tell me all this stuff because it's too scary. And they're right. It is. It's really scary. Yep. And, and that's it. it. It's, you know, as much as I, you know, don't like you, you referencing TV to be part of uh, normal life, but it's the thing is that do you take the red pill or do you take the blue pill? But, you know, once you've mm. taken one, there's no going back. Um, yes. And it's the thing is that once you open your eyes to one thing, then you start, you know, um, rationally questioning other things and critically questioning other things and looking at, at everything that goes on. And then with that, that critical thinking that you, you know, that's there, you know, you've got to weigh up. Is it, is it actually conspiracy theory? Is it, a, well, you know, look at what's happened in the past that have, has been dismissed as a conspiracy theory, yet, you know, little resemblance start becoming true. And then you have to start asking yourself, well, should you just doubt everything? And I think, yes, trust but verify. You should question everything. Yes. You should question everything. Absolutely. Every, you know, go go to the source uh, or you know, look for source material for everything that, that anyone you listen to says, including me. Um, 
you know, I get a lot of people, and, and this happens both among my clients and, and also among my subscribers, where they'll say things to me like, oh, I, I, I trust you to vet the information for me. And, you know, I come to you because I know I can trust your opinion. I'm like, no, don't you do that. Don't you do that. Don't you ever do that. Don't you just trust me unthinkingly. Um, I will provide my information sources and I expect you to go follow them up and not not take anything that I say as being, you know, the, the, the truth and nothing but the truth. I can be wrong. Maybe, maybe the information source that I thought was reliable uh, turns out not to be. Okay, you find that mistake and let me know and I'll correct myself. Yep. And, and that's the thing, I, you know, as I say with most stuff, I'm, I'm more than happy to be proven wrong in anything that I do. Yeah. I would love to be proven yeah. wrong. Um, if I am, exactly. yep, yep, beauty. Um, until such a time, uh, you know, until I'm presented something else that does prove me wrong, I have to believe that my interpretation of whatever I've looked at is the correct one. And what are you really talking about is this, this fundamental underlying value of the Enlightenment and, and therefore, it's the fundamental underlying value of all of the, the Western liberal democracies because they were built on Enlightenment values. Mm. And that is that everything should be, in fact, must be on the table for discussion. And so when we hear that the science is settled or everybody knows or experts agree, <laughs> that should immediately get your spidey senses tingling Right, because that's fundamentally incompatible with enlightenment values, and 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 that's it. It's that, um, you know, it, it's the thing. The science says this. Okay, you know, with with, with this whole woo flu stuff. Oh, this peer review journal says this. This peer review journal says that. Where's the dissenting opinion? And I mean, I I mm. um, disagree with the whole peer reviewed thing because essentially that's just the crowd, um, and you know, it's it's a crowd similar to to quote, unquote, the vegan movement. It's whatever's popular mm. with a crowd at the time is what gets the most airtime. Uh, so, mm. you know, why haven't we seen any dissenting reviews or, or dissenting uh, studies done on on any of the stuff that these people are talking about? Though, that being said, um, I did uh, just before I got on here with you, there was something in the Daily Mail uh, actually, mm. no, correction, it's not the Daily Mail, it was the Atlantic, uh, the US paper um, online, yeah. whatever it is, says the CDC's flawed case for wearing masks in school. Um, yeah, isn't it extraordinary? And the Atlantic, which which just leans so far left, it's like if it was the Tower of Pisa, it, it would already be, have fallen on the on the ground. Um, so when the Atlantic starts to shift it, its stance, you you know that there's really something afoot. Yeah, and it's you know, I mean, uh, why wasn't this stuff? Why wasn't the fourth estate out there questioning this stuff when it happened? When they were doing it, it saying, well, hang on. Yeah, it, it goes, goes back to ownership and control. Mm, mm. Um, and, you know, I'm fairly active on Twitter and um, there's one of the little um, anonymous PR accounts was uh, gleefully posting up on Twitter today uh, that the claim that Melbourne was the most locked down city was actually incorrect. I didn't worry about reading the article because that didn't, really doesn't worry me. Um, and this person, you know, th this fake account was, you know, pointing out, hey, if they got that wrong, what else did they get wrong? But 
it's beside the point. I, it doesn't matter whether Melbourne, Victoria, Australia, Queensland, Brisbane, whatever, is the most locked down, least locked down, second most locked down. We sh- they should have been questioning why they're being locked down in the first place. And that's yes, what exactly. the fourth estate I mean, failed to do. They failed to question. They failed to why. Show us the receipts. Show us why. Don't, don't base it on guesses. Show us why we need to be locked down. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, Noam Chomsky is no longer my my favourite person for reasons that I'm sure you understand, given his recent completely outrageous comments. But, you know, many years ago, he, uh, I'm going to forget the exact quote, but it was something about, you know, allowing vigorous, like how the media operates is they allow vigorous debate within very strictly demarcated bounds. Mm. And so, so that that's you know one of the fundamental processes of, of manufacturing consent. Um, so you might think of it as being the Overton window, right? So, so we can discuss uh, only this part. Like, is is Melbourne the most locked down, or is it somewhere in Peru? <laughs> so that's within the Overton window. That the the much more important discussion: um, Do lockdowns work? Who came up with this idea? Why are we doing this in the first place? When there's a not only a total lack of evidence that that it works. But, but some extremely compelling reasons why we never should have done it in the first place, you know, which is what we discussed last time in terms of uh, Donald Henderson's statements on, on the whole, you know, lockdown, social distancing uh, insanity. Um, so, so, yeah, you know, the, the mainstream uh, dinosaur media outlets are now permitting debate, which is just really stupid, about which city's more locked down than the other while brooking absolutely no discussion about whether this was the correct policy setting or not, which clearly it isn't. Mm. And, um, yeah, it's, it's okay. Now, obviously, um, talking about something that, that's topical for you, um, today's, uh, okay, so this is obviously pre-recorded, so um, this will come out uh, hopefully Tuesday if we don't talk about too much so I don't have to dig up too many show notes. Um, oh, but poor it's, Cameron. It, yeah, Doing I know. research for the show notes. I know. Um, so <laughs> it's, being, it's being recorded on Friday, which is your segregation day for Queensland. Now, we, That's right. um, the dirty amongst us in Victoria have um, been allowed into some parts. Uh, so we're allowed to go into quote-unquote non-essential retail, though who's a bureaucrat to decide what is essential retail and what isn't. Um, So they've deemed that we can go into uh, non-essential retail, though the unclean amongst us aren't allowed to go into a pub. So for some reasons, Mm. science, like going into Kmart, must have a neutralising effect because you can stand 1.5 metres away, diaper it up, not diaper it up, whatever, away from someone or even, you know, shoulder to shoulder in the Christmas Day rush – you can stand beside them that close in, in Kmart and the virus won't spread, yet you can't do the same thing at a beer garden, even if the beer garden's outside. And yes, I, I, but, but hang on a minute. I mean, um, is this under curfew or not? Because as we all know, it's rational to impose a curfew because the virus is more active after 9pm or 10pm, depending on what city you're in. And I also wonder, you know, how, do, how does it behave when daylight saving begins and ends? Like, does it know to go back in its box? I know, yes. <laughs> it's a change from daylight saving. Yes. <laughs> I mean, like, you know, th- this is supposed to be the, the, the most lethal killer virus that, that mankind mm. has ever seen and it's, it's, it's dumb enough not to attack someone in, in Kmart, yet smart enough mm. to attack someone in a pub, even though they're drinking, 
which is a permitted um, action to allow you not to wear the face diaper. So I'm, I'm, mm. I'm really confused about it. And just going on about how deadly and lethal this killer virus is, and, and I use that in quotes, um, Chairman uh, Andrews is on annual leave now. He's, he's away, so we've got another Marxist as Deputy Premier. Anyway, he went out to a bit of a soiree on Sunday and lo and behold, Thursday afternoon or Thursday evening, he gets notified that he's a close contact. I mean, mm. you know, the virus mm. is that deadly. He was exposed on Sunday, yet mm. if he was game enough to be walking around Melbourne, he could have infected how many more other people to be told on Thursday. So, like, really? You know? Yes. I mean, yes. The, the absurdity, I mean, just when you think it, that they've gone to the limits of, of absurdity. They they prove you wrong, and <laughs> and and so yeah, we're we're left in this absurd situation, right? Where where in Sydney and Melbourne, the, the or New South Wales and Victoria more generally, I believe, the restrictions on the you know unjabbed have been eased. Or I mean, in 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 New South Wales, it's just completely abolished. They're all allowed to do whatever. Um, in, in Melbourne, you've got these, uh, you know, extra conditions laid upon you. And now uh, throughout Queensland, which has had no no deaths, <laughs> I, I don't think we've, we've had any COVID-related deaths at all this year in the entire state. But um, as of today, I am no longer permitted to go into, you know, art galleries, uh, pubs, restaurants, bars, cafes, uh, all sorts of, retail outlets like it's it's absolutely ridiculous and of course as a health practitioner I am now not permitted to have someone in my office now I have a home-based practice so you know my home is in the suburbs um I I actually don't go out a, a heck of a lot anyway it's, it's not because I'm afraid of the virus I'm just afraid I'm of just, people full stop I don't know a bit antisocial mm. <laughs> And so I might go for days and days and days only seeing the the, the sort of close members of my family and, and going out to walk the dog, right? Um, but I'm no longer permitted to have somebody in my home-based office, like to have a client in my home-based office. But I could go to a hairdresser and have the hairdresser, you know, quite literally in my face cutting my hair. And she doesn't have to be jabbed she or he, like the hairdresser doesn't have to be jabbed. And the other absurdity is that persons who who carry out non-therapeutic massage, that's a very specific term and it's actually used in the in the Queensland Chief Chief Health Officer's direction. Um, non-therapeutic massage or the practitioners thereof and the institutions in which non-therapeutic massage is um, practiced, carried out, whatever the appropriate term is, um, they're exempt from, from the mandate. So <laughs> Okay. Yeah. Um, so now, I, I so I can't I can't talk to a client sitting in my office. But if I did non therapeutic massage on them, that would be okay. See, my my my, my first thought with, was that was thinking of of how absurd that the rules are in Victoria. That um, okay, bit of an adult conversation here. Um, so. The, thanks to Fiona Patton, the um, Sex Act has changed. So, the um, a a sex worker can go and see a client. Doesn't have to tell the client they have uh, a particular um, sexually transmitted disease, 
and mm. it's no longer offence to remove a condom during sex. Oh. So it is, um, though you can't go to a pub without a face diaper on. Now, when you were talking about non-therapeutic massages, that was my first thought is that there's those particular massages that have a happy ending at the, you know, at the end of it. Um, that, Little added bonus. Yes. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's, it's – and I'm, I'm not saying that all massage is non-therapeutic. It's just that understanding how warped or, or thinking about how warped the laws are down here in Victoria, um, mm. that was my first thought is that those sorts of industries – are given free reign, whereas, um, you know, you, you know, if it's a family that owns a pub or a family that owns a little spice shop or, or um, the charities mm. that own the op shops, they mm. have to have particular requirements for someone to go in. And, and the absurdity of this um, retail stuff, uh, if an employee was working at Kmart, for example, couldn't work without being double jabbed. It's soon to be triple jabbed now if there's been five months since their last one, uh, since their second jab, though they can go in as a customer and spend all day walking around and no one says anything. Mm. So where's the um, – I'd, I'd love to see this, the, the science that says that that's, that's acceptable. There's, you know, the, the risk level and everything like that. And, and as, as you would know, there have been a number of filings for judicial review – to to specifically force the politicians to disclose that, and they won't. They won't. And and, and you and I both know why. There yep. is no such science. There is no rational or scientific basis to any of that, and they know it. And so we're left with with only a couple of potential explanations for this. And I think the most likely explanation is that. These rules are actually meant to be absurd. They're yep. meant to make no sense because that demoralizes and confuses people and puts them in a, in a in a position where they don't even know what to think anymore. So they just sit and wait for instructions. And, oh, and oops, sorry about that. Um, and and so and just to go off on a, on a small tangent. Sorry to interrupt. Just to go off on a small tangent. It reminds me very very much of what. John Taylor Gatto wrote about the system of compulsory schooling. Now, he was writing about the US, but everything he wrote about the US applies equally to, you know, the public education system here in Australia. It is a series of nonsensical rules and uh, stipulations that, that aren't logical in any, you know, by any stretch of the imagination. And what it, what it results in is students who can't, can't think are afraid to express any opinion that's different from the from the mainstream, and really become disinterested in learning. And yeah, it, it's uh, um, since reading some of Seth Godin's stuff um, years ago, years ago, years ago, when I was a bit more into the marketing side of things, I've um, really become disillusioned with the the public school model, um, and then obviously that woke me up to other things and and everything like that. It, um, I yeah, I think that the public education, or even um, let's call it institutionalized education, does uh, leave a lot to be desired um, with uh, their ability to create uh, individuals who are able to con- contribute, make a meaningful contribution to society. 
Um, well, now, I think, as, as John Taylor Gatto um, put it, it's not that the school system is is failing us. Uh, it, it's actually working as as intended. It's working as designed, right? So it's not intended, and it's not designed to produce individuals who can think for themselves, who are able to question the dominant narrative, who have the interest to approach a problem in some sort of area where they don't have any specialist knowledge and say, well, this just interests me, so I'm going to start doing some general reading about it. And if I hit something that I don't understand, well, I'll go to some source material that helps me understand it, right? People people don't seem, people seem, uh, it seems to me that people don't feel confident to do that. So what, what the compulsory schooling system generates is people who stay in their little box. And so one of the most head-scratching elements of, of this whole COVID scandemic has been seeing people who, by conventional standards, are very highly educated, um, acting in ways that you can only say are, are just dumb. I mean, they're just really dumb. Yeah, Some and- of the, 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 the people who have the highest degrees in whatever and are in the most um, highly paid professions are the most stupid. And what I've found is that it's the, it's the tradesmen, it's the, the, the plumbers and the sparkies and the, you know, the tilers um, and the people who run small businesses who may be less school, like year nine or ten or whatever. They're, they're the ones who, in my experience, have, have been the most questioning of this. Yeah, um, there's, uh, whoops, um, I can't remember who does it. There's some um, horseshoe education thing that, that there's obviously the, the lower educated and then it goes up to the, the ones who are sort of medium educated and then it goes down to hyper educated. Um, mm. It seems to, and I, I can't remember where I, I saw that, but it seems to be that the ones at the bottom of the horseshoe are the ones that aren't subscribing to this stuff, but the ones who are more towards the top of the horseshoe are the ones that are, um, you know, well and truly yeah. drinking the Kool Aid um, that, that's uh, yeah, going on. Yeah, there, I mean, there was a there was a survey that came out in the US that found that the the two kind of segments of the population who were most resistant to the idea of taking a COVID shot were black people and uh, and people with PhDs. Now, of course, there are many very well educated black people. Um, however, they they have a history of being, you know, exploited mm. by the, the 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 medical industrial complex, and so they're they're pretty suspicious about any attempt to sort of get control of their bodies, and 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 rightly so. And then you've got the PhDs who are going, no, hang on a minute, my my PhD might have been in I don't know aeronautical engineering or or <laughs> chemical whatever the heck, um, but. But these are people who have the, the not not just the skills, but also the, the basic attitude that they can go into subject matter that isn't their specialty, and they can get their heads around it. They're not going to claim expertise in it, but they can they they have the the sort of cognitive tools to assess a subject area that they haven't previously entered into. And in fact, some of the some of the, the, the best and most incisive papers on the whole COVID-19 phenomenon have been uh, from exactly people like that, you know, like Ronald Koskoff, whose PhD was, I believe, in aeronautical engineering, or uh, Matthew Crawford, who's a mathematician. But they, they can look at, at what's passing for science and all of this and go, yeah, that stinks. Mm. <laughs> That's not science. Mm. <laughs> and... Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, I, I would, 
I, I would imagine those with a PhD in the social sciences are perhaps not as. Uh, yeah, I think uh, they're the ones that are not, not, that not are as, creating the Kool Aid. That, yeah, that's right. They're actually brewing it up in their in their basement. <laughs> yep. Um, so um, going going back to to segregation day. Um, yeah. Have you been out and about today? See what the shops were like and all that. No, not not today. Uh, yesterday, my my daughter is is uh, very talented in uh, very artistically talented and very interested in art. And she she said to me. Uh, the other day, Mum, this is this is going to be our last opportunity to see, you know, Van Gogh alive, which is this really amazing exhibition of, of Van Gogh's um, artwork set to music and scent and all the rest of it. And um, she'd been wanting to go for ages, and of course, as of today, we we can't we can't go. And and they had signs up, so we went yesterday, like the final day, when we're not persona non grata, and they had signs in the venue saying that, you know, as of Friday the 17th, um, anyone who wants to go into this exhibition has to show proof of vaccination. And it's pretty stark, you know. So so yesterday it was considered safe for myself and my daughter, both of us perfectly well, no respiratory tract symptoms, both of us normal weight, healthy eaters, blah, blah, blah. It was perfectly safe for us to walk into that venue and sit there for an extended period of time with a bunch of other people, you know, watching this this um, wonderful uh, sort of multimedia experience. But today it's not safe. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, I mean, of course, because science. Um, I mean, only reason I ask that is because, you know, I wandered around the shops, um, you know, pre-quote-unquote um, Freedom Day when the papers were required and, um, mm. Just having a look at the atmosphere uh, prior to Thursday, like the atmosphere, like no one seemed happy um, at any of the shopping centres I went to, any of the food courts that I've been to for the last week. Um, a lot of people on the doors of the um, shops, some took great mm. joy in asking people for papers, um, other mm. stores not necessarily so and it was easy to have a rational discussion with them and explain the situation and everything like that. Um, but yeah, it, it, you know, it just seems to suck the life out of people and, um, and I, and again, I actually think that's the intention. The intention is demoralization. Um, in, in terms of the, the segregation here in Queensland, at least on the Gold Coast where, where I live and also in the more rural area, which we're going to be moving to, uh, in a couple of months, um, there is a fair bit of resistance from small business in particular. So you've got this split between the, the sort of the government operated enterprises, the you know state-owned libraries and so forth and, and, and the galleries and they're all very enthusiastically enforcing this and then you know some of the, the larger businesses. And some of the smaller businesses, uh, there, there are you know people running those are are quite enthusiastic about being able to keep those nasty young jack people out. But the vast majority of, of small business owners, they really don't want any part of this. Um, some of them are probably going to go along with it for the first couple of weeks and make a show of asking for people's papers. But general compliance with with QR code check in and whatnot is is uh, very low um, up here. Mm. And I expect that the level of compliance with these vaccine pass check-ins is 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 going to be similarly extremely low. Again, probably an initial show while they wait to see whether there's you know 
people going to dob them in for it or police wandering down the street or incognito health offices or whatever the heck. And after a couple of weeks, I would expect that most of them are going to be going, yeah, no, I'm not doing this. Um, I'm running a business here. I, I just want to serve customers. And, and if the government wants me to, to play an enforcement role, tough titties, because they're not paying me a, a red cent extra to do this. Mm. So if they want this enforced, they can send someone out to do it. Mm. And, and I mean, it's the thing is that the irony with all or what I find ironic is that all these businesses that are happy to have someone at, you know, pay someone to stand on the door They'd still be shut if it wasn't for all these people protesting against the lockdown and opposing the lockdown and getting vocal about mm. the lockdowns and draconian measures. So, you know, it, it's the thing. It's uh, you know, it's, it looks like that they're essentially biting the hand that fed them. I mean, because you know, as uh, you know, as I mentioned, my views on on parades through towns and all that sort of stuff. Um, but you know, I, I was still opposing it, whether it's on social media, whether it's it's doing podcasts and getting that out every day. It, you know, it's it's the thing is that all these people that were opposing the stuff that enabled them to open, they've turned around mm. and said, no, we're happy to be the government's enforcement arm and keep you out of our shop. Well, you know what? I'm, mm. I remember. I'm going to remember all these shops. I'm going to remember the barbers that I went to and they've said, no, where's your papers? And I'm, I'm going to remember mm. them and never go back. And yeah. Yeah, and I think that's what we need to be doing as a society. I, I think it's also reassuring to see that a lot of people who, who did have the jab, some of them, you know, quite willingly lined up for it and others were coerced into it. But plenty of plenty of those people are saying, well, I don't support segregation. Like, this was my decision to, to get this experimental product injected into me. But I, I'm not in favour of having it forced upon anyone and I'm certainly not in favour of having medical apartheid imposed on my society. So it's not just those who've declined the shot. Uh, a lot of those who, who either willingly or unwillingly took it are also totally not on board with mm. this. And that probably includes a lot of the, um, a lot of the people running the businesses. Mm. And, I mean, but it's also the thing is that how many therapeutics are you going to sign up to? What's your what's your limit to say? Well, no, hang on, you've gone too far. Yes, and people were sold this notion that oh, it's just two shots. Yep. It's it's two, and then you're done. And now they're being told, well, actually, no, there's a third, and wouldn't you know it, there's a fourth, and <laughs> yeah. after that, there's going to be a fifth, and a sixth, and a seventh, and and many of those who again either willingly or unwillingly took the first two are now saying, hang on a minute. I, that this was not part of the deal. You told me, you know, they then those told me that I could have my freedom back, which honestly, that makes me gag. As if the government gives you your freedom. Yep. yep. I mean, come on. Yep. Well, we do have a thing called the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Um, those freedoms are intrinsic to us as, as humans. Yep. And the government doesn't dispense those freedoms. It's not that those freedoms are not theirs to sort of take away and then and then you know dole them back out to us if we're good little you know little muppets um anyway where was i uh so uh, yeah but, but the people who were promised their their freedom back if they just got their two jabby jabs and a lot of them are getting pretty pretty uh, bent out of shape about the prospect that their their little green vaccine their little green tick on their passport is going to turn into a big fat red cross if they don't sign up for the third and 
and any subsequent ones. So, I mean, when even my my rather elderly neighbour, um, who I saw while walking the other day, has a whinge about how you know he's not going to go on a cruise again, which he loves doing, um, because he doesn't want to have to go through all the testing and the scanning and all the rigmarole. I'm like, whoa, the winds are the winds are changing here because mm. he couldn't wait to to rush down to the doctor and get his jab, and now he's saying, no, nah, I had two, and that's it. That's my limit. Okay, so is is all that part of the demoralisation thing? Is that you mm. you know it's it's okay? We'll release the you know let go of the the leash a little bit, but then we'll yank on and, and pull it harder. So, well, these are torture techniques, aren't they? Mm. They're well established torture techniques. Mm. And the CIA and, and various other agencies have spent decades developing techniques like these. They have entire handbooks yeah. written on how you do this to people. You, you know, it, so so it's like Stockholm syndrome 10x, right? You, you uh, isolate people, you uh, demoralise them, you dehumanise them, you make them dependent on you for every little thing. Um, you you control every aspect of their life. I mean, for God's sake, the government was actually dispensing advice on how to have sex or not. Yes. You know. Yes. Like, it's, <laughs> did you did you see that? I mean, yeah. Oh, yep. Did you see that that advice? I can't remember which health department issued it, but but that um, they they suggested that couples should um, just engage in in sort of masturbation while while wearing a mask and and maintaining one point five meters distance between yeah. them, and that was to be their sexual contact during yep. the pandemic. Uh, or or the, either that, or use a glory hole. Yep. I, I think that was um, the advice issued by, if I remember rightly, that was um, British Columbia's. Uh, uh, in Canada, they're, they're sort of state-sanctioned state um, advice on yep. how to have sex. And so, for yeah, any listeners, I don't recommend searching for, for those particular terms. Just take take just leave it at that. You know it's a word. <laughs> don't search for it. Man, that, that's one heck of a rabbit hole, yes. isn't it? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Um, but, <laughs> Glory hole, rabbit hole, yeah. something like that. Um, yeah. Um, so, so it's demoralisation. Yeah. Yes. So going along with that, um, there was some talking head um, from ABC um, posted up on her Twitter thing that the great thing about her marriage with her husband is that they do a rapid action test with on each other every morning. It's just like, really? How effed up is your relationship or are you to think that you need to test your husband, your partner that you've just been sharing a bed with every morning? And I mean, like, really? I, mean, I, I, would, I would have assumed that that was some sort of, you know, spoof account. No, but, I, I thought it was yeah. too, but it, it, no, it's, it's not. These these people are for real, aren't yeah. they? I mean, that is that is so terrifying. That, uh, I I cannot begin to fathom what is going through a person's mind when they're actually seeing their marital partner, their spouse, as being a potential source of infection to them that they need to clear every day before they can have you know, conjugal relations with yeah. them or maybe even sit down across the breakfast table with them. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. What have we come to as a society when, when people can put that on Twitter and 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 uh, somehow expect that others are not going to go, you're a total whack job. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. Now, um, nice segue talking about total whack jobs. Um, two things that... Going back to that demoralisation thing, uh, I've mentioned before and uh, you did mention about the um, judicial reviews. 
my thoughts are is that there's been a lot of judicial reviews that are done very, very vague for the purposes of demoralising um, the holdouts so that, you know, for, for the view that, oh, okay, no, so-and-so's tried, whether it's a high-profile high person or whatever or it gets media mm. attention, these court cases are deliberately designed to fail to demoralise people so then they end up, you know, capitulating and uh, following with what, with what the regime uh, wants uh, you know would you be inclined to, and, and you know obviously if you've got different happy to explore that different view that's my view um you know understanding that i'm not a lawyer and you know i don't know the ins and outs mm. of the legal system no though. i i actually would agree with you on that there there have been multiple opportunities that a a barrister who really wanted to pursue a particular line of argument um could have could have done so and I, I do remember in the Clive Palmer versus WA government case, the the uh, judge really did throw Palmer's barrister a, a bone. He basically, he basically sort of uh, offered him the opportunity to, to pursue a particular legal argument which probably would have won Palmer's case and, the, and, and Palmer's barrister declined. Mm. It's quite extraordinary. And, and so... Um, yeah. No, you go ahead. Yeah. So, so, so no. I there have been a lot of. Um, I wouldn't say a lot. There, with, of, of the cases that have been brought so far, I, I would say they have been extraordinarily poorly argued. On the whole, um, there there are some exceptions. So, you, you know, if anyone's if anyone's going to get hot under the collar and, and argue with me, yeah, fine. No, I, I'm not saying every single case has been thrown or poorly argued. But the most significant ones uh, indeed have been and the most compelling evidence and the most compelling legal arguments have not have not been put on the table, have not been pursued. And so, I mean, and, and that's the thing, is that because um, the these people are reliant on a particular registration with a particular industry group or body group and all that sort of stuff mm. and that... If they go hard on a particular line of questioning, uh, you know, is it that potentially that they could be forever branded as that sort of person, which then in restricts their ability to get work because someone from someone else won't look at them because oh my god, they're they're this or they're that. Um, yeah, I, I'm, I, I think, you know, I understand yeah. it's probably a bit of a vague point there, but um, I hope well, you're getting no, what I'm my, saying. My actually a retired solicitor and so his perspective as you know having been in the legal profession is number one um the the top law firms want government business mm. so the big law firms get a load of money out of out of you know working for the government and the government pays better than everybody else because they've got taxpayers money to squander so so the you know the law firms will charge more for government work than, than they will for you know uh, non-government work. So that that's that's the first thing. Uh, the the second thing is that the the legal profession on the whole is is I suppose you would say very conservative. And so if there if there is a sort of general societal perspective, then they're more inclined to sort of you know uh, hew to that perspective. We don't we don't have a tradition of activist lawyers and and activist judges here as they do in the United States, which is quite possibly why U.S. legal cases are rarely used as as precedents here. Mm. 
um, our, our legal system adheres much more closely to the UK model. And they've, they've had a few sort of activist lawyers and judges over the years, but not nearly as many as in the US. And uh, there's at, at the level of the judiciary, I don't think any any uh, judge wants to be that guy or, or gal, you know, the first one who judges the facts of a case on their merit and basically knocks this whole house of cards over. Nobody wants to be that person because they will be they will live in infamy mm. <laughs> because of that. Mm. Okay, and what whatever whatever appointments and and you know honors they were hoping to get are not going to be theirs because they basically stood up and said the emperor is not wearing any clothes. Yes, and governments have a long memory. They do indeed, they do. and and when when you know when you look at, at the favors that are done for for those who who do what the government wants them to do. I mean, you, know, you get to be the governor general, or maybe you get to be a you know have a sort of plum ambassadorial role or something like that. There are all sorts of little favors or big favors that can be done for mm. you if you follow the government line. Mm. Okay, now. Um... Some, sort of coming back to the Wu flu stuff and we could probably tie it into other things is that uh, you were mentioning that there's um, lack of critical debate on the subjects. Mm. Now, um, yes, I stalked you on Facebook a while ago and I saw there was a particular subject that you um, – something mm. that you may have innocently posted that – Turned into an absolute mm. shitstorm. Um, you don't have to talk Did about that rather, in particular. Um, yeah. So, but it's the thing is that how many other areas? I mean, we know that with obviously there's a the woo flu, there's climate change. Um, that mm. uh, you know everyone looks at, at one particular thing, but doesn't look at something else, and you can't question it or say, "Hey, hang on, mm. let's look, let's expand the scope on something," because then you become a climate denier. Um, you can't talk about. Yeah. Um, anything to do with uh, changing government because then you become an anti-government person. Well, mm. you know, and, and it's all yeah. that. Um, Conspiracy theorist, yes. anti-vaxxer, you know, whatever phobic, yes. Now, is this yes, making society, society dumber um, where idiocracy Without is a becoming doubt. a prophetic movie? Yeah, yeah it, it, totally, totally. I mean, idiocracy is basically the model, isn't it? Mm. And... Um, it, it's it's so hard to tell with with these movies. Um, are they are they people who are sort of warning us about the the path that we're going down, or are they predictive programming? And I I think it's you know it, it's a mixture. I think there are plenty of of artistic types who have seen or you know have foreseen the the the, the paths that we're treading, and are frantically you know signalling, don't go there, don't go there. So, you know, and, and 1984, of course, is mm. a great example of that. Orwell was most decidedly um, raising the alarm and saying, you know, this this is it, this is the boot stamping on the human face forever, don't go there. Now, um, as an example of predictive programming, though, of course, Orwell's mentor was, was um, Aldous Huxley, mm. who was very much, you know, in and of the establishment and so Brave New World wasn't Huxley's warning to the world. That was Huxley saying, yeah, well, we're going down that road, so you better get used to it. And now when, when we look at, so, you know, for those who haven't read um, Brave New World or for those who, for, for whom it's been a while, 
um, Huxley opens the book with this image of how how uh, babies are born in in the brave new world and they're incubated, right? So they're genetically uh, bred, and 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 there are various classes of human beings who are bred with a certain, you know, IQ or physical capacity or whatever, to assume their allotted place in society. So, you know, the stupid, ugly ones are, are, are bred to do manual labour and the, the, the beautiful, smart ones are going to take up managerial roles. And, and the whole thing is done in, in basically like you know, giant factories, so, you know, breeding humans um, outside the womb. Mm. <laughs> and, and, and this was, I, if, I, if my memory serves me correctly, Brave New World was published in 30, 32? Yeah, I think. I think it was, yeah. Early 30s anyway. Yep. And, and now what are we seeing? You know, this is exactly what we're seeing. You know, in, people are being presented with images of incubators where you can basically gestate your baby in the living room, which is, which is so much more convenient than actually having that baby inside you. Mm. And, you know, we've got research papers or papers being published in medical journals about how we could construct a, a uterus so that a person who's undergone, um, you know, gender reassignment surgery um, so, so a person who was born in a male body but decides that they want to be a woman and have experiences like pregnancy and giving birth could actually do so with with a a uterus that was either removed from a cadaver. So basically, you know, a woman dies in a car accident, you whip out her uterus and implant it into the body of a of a person who is biologically male. <sighs> Or was born a male, right? Or, or breeding. I think it was baboons. Was the was the species of breeding baboons in order to harvest uteruses for them to implant on these people? So, so we are a disgusting species. I mean, I, you literally. I mean, I was going to say you can't make this stuff up. Well, Huxley did. Mm. He made it up. Right, because because he was basically saying, well, hey, this is the future. And then apparently people read Brave New World and didn't go, wow, this is a warning. They went, man, this is a blueprint. Let's totally build incubators to, to grow fetuses in. And it's um, one, of my, one of my favourite movies ever is The Life of Brian, mm. um, which, is, which is just so brilliant. And, and, of course, could not be made. That movie couldn't be made now mm. because <laughs> the famous scene where Stan decides he wants to be Loretta, yes. right? Yes. <laughs> like, I want to be a woman. I want to have babies. And, and Reg, played by John Cleese, says, we can't have babies. Mm. <laughs> Stan shoots back, don't you oppress me? <laughs> and Reg replies, but you don't have a womb. Where's the fetus going to gestate? You've got to keep it in a box. And, of course, you couldn't make a movie like that now because that's literally what is being talked about, that if Stan wants to have babies, it's his right as a woman uh, okay. <laughs> or a man or something. Uh, um, I think it's time to stop so, the merry-go-round. Uh, yeah, I know. It's just crazy. And so so, that, so then the question is, um, should... Should we, should we as, as, as a people, should we as a society, as, as human beings, should we or should we not be able to have a discussion about this and be able to put different points of view, okay? Because in many circles, what I just said to you and the reason why um, 
Life of Brian could not be made these days is that it would be labelled as transphobic. Yes. So with me saying, look, is it right? Is this a good idea? Is this a good idea that, that we um, tinker with, with human biology in this way? Uh, that in, in many quarters would be, or, or you know, in, in this sort of establishment quarter would be seen as being transphobic. Like, no, I, I do not object to any person living their life in any way that they see fit, as long as they do not um, transgress the rights of any other person, mm. right? So I'm fundamentally libertarian in my outlook. You do you, and if you want to worship this God or or not worship anyone or have sex with a person of your same sex or or not have sex or have sex with multiple people, like as long as they're agreeable to that, I'm totally fine with it. Mm. I honestly don't care. Mm. But when it comes to to questions like, is this a good idea, you know, to to take a uterus from from a dead woman or from a baboon and implant it into the body of a person who was born a male, you know, I I think these debates need to be had. And if people are too scared to raise these subjects because they're going to be attacked by the Twitter mob, that's a very, very dark place that we have reached in our civilization. And, and, and in fact, we're going backwards. We're going back to the day when you couldn't question the, you know, the edicts of the Pope, for instance, yes. or the king. Yes. And, and, I mean, we're already there. I mean, um, when was it? Late last year or early this year, um, the Victorian government got so excited about um, passing their gay conversion bill, um, mm. which uh, essentially made it unlawful for um, anyone to challenge any person's decision to identify as a different gender. Now, mm. a couple of things in that was that, that I found really interesting at the time was that they made it uh, an offence to pray for someone. So, mm. you know, mm. for mm. a regime that wants to remove the Lord's Prayer from the opening of Parliament mm. um, because it's not um, not representative of, you know, greater Victorians and all that sort of stuff, they're all of a sudden mm. outlawing prayer um, because mm. it's an offence. Mm. So mm. it, you know, it, it doesn't matter what your thoughts are on religion and I'm not making this a, a religion-based um, mm. thing, but it's more about... Um, you know, is it they know that praying has an impact on someone or is it that they don't want someone doing something? And, and I mean, there's, yeah. you know, there, so, there's so I mean, many the holes that in that would, bill that, that's just wrong yeah. with society. The way that I would see that is they that, that the Victorian government has sought to remove any source of authority except itself. Yes. So nobody except the Victorian government has the legal right to weigh in on this, not yes. the parents, not, um, you know, as I understand that bill, a counsellor or a psychologist who even said to a, you know, a, a child or a teenager who was considering this, hey, you know, um, let, let's think this through. Like, you're quite young. This is a serious step. Maybe maybe we just need to, um, you know, have some conversations about this because, you know, adolescence is, is a difficult time and people have, people are struggling to form their identity and, and 
you know, let's let's not have you rush into decisions. As I understand it, a person uh, like a professional who took that point of view could actually be um, punished under that law. Yes. Now, correct me if I'm yes. wrong. Yes, no, that's right. That is right. That's right. Okay. It becomes so in other a, words, there, um, is, there is no authority. There is no professional authority. There's no parental authority. There's no religious authority. There is only the authority of the Victorian government. Yep. That ought to frighten the pants off everyone. Yep. Absolutely. And in line with that is that the um, that was heavily pushed by um, Medic and the Greens and then they got mm. all excited about it. They're also pushing for an increase for the age of criminal um, consent or liability or whatever the terminology is from 10 to 14. Fully accept that. Mm. I fully accept that. Absolutely. In this gay mm. conversion bill, mm. there's no minimum age. So if your two-year-old mm. turns around and says, I want to be a boy and, you know, they happen to be born mm. as as a female because there's only two mm. genders, if they mm. say, I want to be a boy and you say, no, that's silly, while you can be, you know, you are essentially guilty of an offence under the Act because you're not supporting them in their yeah. decision. Yeah. And, and so a two-year-old is, is supposed to be equipped to make a decision like yeah. that. I mean... Think about it. As parents, we make all sorts of decisions on behalf of our children. Yep. We make decisions about what school or to, some, to send them to. Some. And that's a... Some, 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 yeah. some, some. Well, like in Victoria, they can get the jab by being being a, mm. a, a mature consent or whatever that bullshit term yeah. is. Yeah, um, yeah. But the, again, I mean, this is the state intruding in a place where it has no business. Now, I can tell you, as, as the mother of a, uh, now a 16, nearly 17-year-old daughter, okay, let me, let me just recount. And, and sorry, let me set the backstory for this because I've also been in clinical practice for uh, getting on for 26 years. And so, uh, and I'm, I have dual backgrounds so as, as both a naturopath and a counsellor. So over the years, I have seen a number of mm, crazes, trends, uh, patterns, patterns of uh, pathological behaviour occurring in, in teenage girls. And way, way, way back, uh, the, the, the pattern of, of um, contagious pathology, like socially contagious pathology, mm. was anorexia nervosa. Mm. You remember the day. Yep, you know, yep. Um, one one girl would start. One girl in a high school class would start starving herself, and uh, and before you know it, you know five, ten girls in that year, and then girls in the younger years as well, would have sort of, quote unquote, caught that that behaviour, and and you've got you know oodles of girls starving themselves and ending up in hospital. And then this primary pattern uh, switched to bulimia. And it's, it's very interesting. There was a study that was done looking at the influence of uh, Princess Diana's sort of public discussion of her own bulimia. And at that, you know, after that point in time, more and more girls started to be uh, diagnosed with bulimia. So they switched from starving themselves to doing the binge and purge. And this was also showing up in, in parts of the world where eating disorders were, were almost entirely unknown. Actually, I did read a study some time ago about the sudden manifestation of eating disorders in Fijian girls. Um, and, you know, Polynesians tend to prefer women of a, you know, more robust physique. Um, but when, when this remote Fijian island finally got television and it turned out that the, uh, the prevailing fodder for the teenage girls was Melrose Park, which was populated by these, you know, insanely skinny girls, and suddenly there's an outbreak of bulimia. 
and anorexia among Fijian schoolgirls in whose culture losing weight had before this been seen as a sign of illness that the whole community should be really concerned by. Okay, so so then then um, uh, probably about ten years ago, give or take, the the contagious phenomenon, uh, socially contagious phenomenon among teenage girls became um, self self harm, mm. so cutting mm. primarily. And in my daughter's high school, when she was in about year seven or eight, there was there was just this sort of uh, avalanche of, of, of self-harm behaviours. I actually talked to the school counsellor and she said, my God, it's just like every second girl is, is, is cutting herself. And then when my daughter was in around, uh, say, year nine, um, the social contagion became identifying as a boy. Mm. And suddenly, like in a relatively small class, there were like, you know, two or three or might even have been four of her friends or classmates who were, who adopted, you know, male names and wanted to be addressed as either he or they in some cases. And then, uh, you know, after, after about two years had passed, um, every single one of these girls decided that once again they were girls and mm. they went back to their girl names and they got boyfriends so um so there was there was this very now so what would have happened if in the midst of of these girls deciding that they were actually transgender their parents had said oh well i guess you're a boy now we'll take you off to the to the um you know to the, the gender conversion clinic or whatever the heck and get you on the hormones and surgery and all the rest of it. What would have happened to those girls? Yep. Yep. Rather and than their parents saying, Do you know, look, I'm perfectly perfectly okay with you. Like if you want to dress as a boy and 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 do all that stuff, like, okay, we'll go along with that. But but um the parents, in my opinion, quite rightly recognised that this was more a classic adolescent identity crisis, mm. right? Their their daughters were try, battling to come to grips with who they were, which is the point of adolescence. It's a time when we struggle to to figure out who we are and and uh, to sort of shake off the influence of our of our family and and start imbibing like a, a wider perspective from the society that that we live in, which which includes the um, the opinions of our peers and, and and so on and so forth. But the, the notion that it would have been against the law for any of the parents of these girls to sort of sit them down and go, look, um, your, your dad and I love you and we're very uh, sympathetic to, to what you're going through, but we're actually not going to give you permission for you to do something to your body that that is going to have permanent repercussions. We're just not going to do that because we care about you and we don't think that you have the maturity and the life experience to make such a life-altering decision right now. The notion that that would have been against the law is horrifying to me. But, but what your Victorian law says is that parents are not the experts on their children. Yep. Okay, that parents who have raised these humans from the womb don't know enough about them to be able to weigh in on this topic. Yep. Now, I'm not saying that all parents are good parents, oh, right? Yeah, totally, Obviously, totally. there are parents who, who, when their kid comes out as gay or whatever, they, they have an awful response to it. And I'm not condoning that. But I'm saying that most parents 
want what's best for their kid, and it's the parent that knows the kid yep. better and than any health professional or teacher. Yep, and, and, and that, certainly better than the state. That's the thing that um, you know. It, it's the thing is that the only you know reason I brought that up because it, it um, was that you posted the, uh, something by um, Abigail Schreier. Now, mm. um, if you're able to get the book, sadly, you've got to get it from the US because no Australian bookstore has it, Irreversible Damage. Mm. Um, yeah. It is well worth getting because it talks all about what you were just saying and mm. um, thanks to these laws that are now in Victoria, you can't challenge gender dysphoria. You have to let mm. them do that. So when they, ha- when they realise they've made a bad decision – and they do want to transition back. And um, in some of her other work that she's done, she does mention cases where um, individuals born female, transitioned to male, had, um, didn't fully transition but went on the, the um, testosterone and all that sort of mm. stuff, wanted to tra- you know become female again and they couldn't mm. because these, the, testosterone, the drugs and all that just screwed up their system. I think... There is one case going through the courts for a gender reassignment um, clinic and um, for, for, for whatever reason is, I'll, I'll have to find it and see if I can include it in the show notes. But, um, I believe there's an English case. Yes. Um, the girl who had the, the double mastectomy yes. and the hysterectomy and the whole yes. and dice and, and she's now like early 20s or something and, and yeah, she's, she's suing the clinic because she basically said, look, I, I, was, I was effectively a child mm. and... You you let me do this, like you encouraged me to do this, and you didn't, you know, you didn't give me the the the, the, the proper context for making this decision. Um, mm. I think that's terrifying. Now now, are there people who were really just genuinely born in the wrong body? Yes, I don't have any doubt about that. Like the wrong sex body, or they the they don't identify. They they don't ah sorry. Are there people who would say born in the, the body of a male, but and, and they have male genitalia and all the rest of it, but they they just they don't fit in that body. They have the nature uh, yeah, of, that's, of that's, a female. That's true. Yes. That's that's true. And um, it, it could be it could be entirely appropriate for them to have that gender reassignment surgery. Like I'm not gonna I'm not gonna weigh in and say they should or they shouldn't. What I'm saying is there needs to be a debate and, and, and a discussion about this. And at the very least, we need to figure out criteria for the people for whom this is appropriate and, and would make their lives better and the people for whom it is not appropriate and it would make their lives worse. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't think that is an outrageous thing to say. In other words, you know, we need to avoid doing avoidable harm to, to people who were transitioned um, and it simply wasn't appropriate for them. Yep. I mean, and, you have a look, um, you know, all the, the medical professionals and, and all that BS say you know, children can't have alcohol till they're 19. I think some studies are saying, oh, sorry, till they're, they're 18. Some are saying actually till they're 21 because the, the brain mm. is still developing and everything like that. Mm. Out here we allow 18. They can't drink legally until they're 18, yet at 16 or 17 if they want to go on testosterone, we have to let them. I mean, I think yeah. testosterone is a bigger thing to fuck up your. Sorry, I'm. I want to let it out now. Um, system yeah. than what alcohol is, and I mean, yes. you know, yes. it's. Yes. 
it's uh, I, what 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 I'm really disturbed by is that we've we've reached the place in our society where people aren't allowed to even discuss this mm. without the threat of having the Twitter mob sicked onto them. Uh, that's that's just like what what are we back back in the in in the time of the the witch hunt? Yes, you know, is this the Spanish Inquisition? Yes. <laughs> Like, and, you know, yeah. Western civilization struggled for hundreds of years to get to the point where someone could stand in the town square and say the king's a lecher or the pope is wrong. Mm. <laughs> and and then in the space of a generation we throw that away? Yep. <laughs> yep. And what the hell? Yeah, exactly. What the hell? And I mean, you have a look at um, you know, big tech um that uh, are not the town square because despite claiming that they are, they don't behave like it through algorithms and all that sort of stuff. I mean, Twitter's come out and openly has a policy saying that if anyone puts out that the vaccinated can spread the woo flu, they'll get blocked and you know, they'll have their account deleted. Well, that that is medical misinformation within itself because the CDC has even turned around and said, if you jab, that you can spread the virus. So, Michelle Walensky, the yes. director of the CDC, has said it. Anthony Fauci, the head mm. of NIAID, has said it. Bill Gates has said it. So, you know, are these people allowed to post on their Twitter accounts, or, or can I put up a video of Anthony Fauci or Bill Gates or Michelle Walensky saying these things? Like, do I do I get that? Like, how does this work? Oh, yeah. And why is anybody accepting this? Yeah, I know. I mean, um, I'd, I'd love to try it, um, except I. Um, have already had a 12-hour ban for posting something about smallpox that they said was COVID misinformation. So um, (laughs) I really don't know how that works. Um, But anyway, yeah, it just the algorithm picked it up and I was going to challenge it. I thought that would probably take a week to respond, in which case I'm without Twitter for a week. Not that that would be a bad thing. Um, but yeah, I think your life would actually be better. <laughs> I wouldn't have as much material for the podcast because there's nothing to talk about because well, all the idiots are on Twitter. True, true. Um, <laughs> it's, it's a Twitter's a weird place, isn't it? It's a I, I, I go on there like every couple of days just just you know to sniff around for ten minutes and then I get out of there again before it before it um, steals my brain. <laughs> oh, I mean, I, I get great enjoyment out of it. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah, because it's just to have a look at. at how daft people are um, yeah, and, and I mean, how they're, they're fragile, a, how fragile they are. Yes, yes. And, you know, it's, 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 so, it's so interesting. Um, if you look at the, the kinds of um, political and social debates that were taking place a century or more ago, um, there, there are some fantastic you know, transcripts of, of, of debates that were that, that occurred, say, in, in the US um, in the 19th century, where, you know, two people with opposing points of view would, would, would uh, debate each other in a town hall meeting and, like, 500 people from the local area would, would turn up and these debates might go on for, you know, four to six hours. And these were prepared speeches, right? And you can read transcripts of them that were preserved in the newspapers. These people were making really complex arguments that went on and on. They were, they were. Um, these debates would, would get fairly vigorous. Let's just say there might even be personal attacks. Um, 
or like not physical attacks, mm. but people might might sort of say nasty words against each other. Even imagine that, mm. and um, and and none of this was considered beyond the pale. In fact, you know, like I say, you get audiences of a couple of hundred people who'd, who'd turn up um, and to, to the town hall and 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 sit there with their bums getting number and number for for six hours while these people kind of duked it out on the stage, and like that was. That was part of normal political and social discourse. And now where are we at? Yes. Right? You can't, you can't have a scientist who, who questions um, anthropogenic climate change. You can't have them on, on the TV. You can't have a debate between people who think that, um, you know, 16-year-olds should be allowed to take testosterone to to change their bodies and people who think that's a bad idea. Mm. And God forbid you can never, never have anyone, you know, in a public forum saying, do you know what, there's actually some problems with, with vaccines, yep. COVID or, or, or whatever else. That's, that is a, a, a really disturbing turn that yes. our society has taken yep. where... People are are well. People are afraid, sort of, in the course of their everyday existence, whether it's offline or online, to express unpopular opinions. Going back to that Abigail Schreier article, by the way, um, I, I must confess I, I have not actually read her book. I have heard her interviewed on a on a couple of podcasts about the book and the research that went into it, and the kinds of people who who actually approached her, mm. who wanted their stories told. But I, I've not yet read the book. However. Um, someone else that I follow on Substack actually posted a link to this speech. Um, so, so the article was was from Abigail Schreier's Substack, but it was a transcript of a speech that she'd given to a graduating class at, um, I believe it was Yale University. And and the, the the long and the short of the speech was, don't be afraid to express unpopular opinions. Don't go with the crowd. Uh, don't sell yourself out if you believe in something strongly and you've you've gathered evidence for it. Have the courage and and the personal integrity to stand up for yourself. That was the speech, mm. and so I posted a link to that on on my Facebook page and said it's a great speech. You know, um, you might want to read it, and <laughs> and and so you know perhaps your listeners will appreciate the irony. A woman who was arguing that people should have the courage to express unpopular opinions. <laughs> was attacked. <laughs> so, so the the person who who started this this sort of Facebook spat on my page said, you know, I'm I'm summarising. Um, you shouldn't listen to her because because I don't agree with her opinion. Mm. <laughs> yes. So, all right, um, and, and things went on from there, and 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 yeah, we don't really need to get into it. But it was it was just so completely absurd and ridiculous that someone who's saying, look. Have courage. Speak up. You could be wrong. You know, you could have an unpopular opinion. You could be wrong. Well, fine. You know, get corrected. Change your opinion. But at least have the gonads to open your mouth and say something that the rest of the crowd doesn't agree with. Yep. I mean, how is that such a difficult idea to wrap your head around? Yep. And, and I mean, it's, it's the thing, something that, you know, I'm trying to teach my son um, is... Uh, there's what is it a poem or something by um, Alexander Stolznich? I can never pronounce oh, his surname. Yeah, live yeah. not by lies. Um, yeah. And and it's the thing is that you know he's asked me 
my particular views on what's going on in Melbourne society, in Victorian society and mm. the world, and I've expressed mm. to him. And he said, well, why? And I said, because I won't live by a lie. Um, I don't believe that. I'm not going to, you know, it, it's not going to come out of my mouth. Um, and, mm. you know, I'm not going to to do that. And, and I think that that's what we all need to do um, is yeah. to do that. And, you know, going back with what you were saying, when I was growing up about the scientists – one of my favourite scientists was David Bellamy going through the 70, late 70s, early 80s. He was brilliant. And the biggest concern for him was global cooling, that the world was going to cool down too much and Remember everything that. like that. Yeah. And he yeah. still pushed that. Then the narrative changed from uh, the, the, the global narrative, not his. Um, he hasn't changed from that, which is why you don't see him anymore. Um, to, He's been cancelled, hasn't yes, he? Yes. He has because he refused we, 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 to accept we've it. We've got the other David because the other David agrees with the mainstream narrative. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. And and it, it's the thing is that, you know, like, you know, has, has someone as brilliant as that, that, mm. you know, he's got his view and instead of saying, okay, let's question it, let's let's see which one works. No, we're getting on, on, on we're following the advice of a freaking, at the time, 16-year-old. We've mm. swallowed that and yet me as a late 40s can't question anything because I'm not a scientist and yet a couple of years ago we sucked in what the 16-year-old was pushing. Where's that? Yes. Um, now, yes. also talking... Yeah, the world's COVID response is being led by, you know, a college dropout um, who has no, you, you know, no medical training, no nothing. Yes. I'm talking about Bill Gates, of course. Yes, um, yes. So can't even build a decent Gates, operating system. That's right. So Bill, Bill Gates is not a doctor, but he gets to tell the world uh, how it should respond to COVID. And, yeah, um, someone who, who spent even less time in school than he did is telling the world how it should respond to, to climate change. Yep. Um, Joe Rogan and Dr McCulloch did a big thing and um, Dr McCulloch's whole thing, I mean, I, I haven't watched its entirety yet and... Three um, hours worth. Oh, shit, was it that long? <laughs> it's quite the adventure, yeah, yeah, oh. yeah. And, I mean, it, it's the thing is that his, the information that he's putting out, like, you know, based on, on what I understand of it, why aren't we spending more time listening to this guy instead of um, people who, who have been very flexible with the truth or actually I wouldn't even say mm. flexible. They just go whichever way the pendulum goes. Um yes. Based on on other shows that I've seen, I think he's very complicit. Um, and you know, there, there's what was it that article in the Daily Mail that said that it looks like it did come from a lab um, mm. was the likely origin of COVID because um, Beijing tried to cover it up, um, and it is responsible to believe the virus was engineered in China. A Harvard scientist says so. That was in the Daily Mail. Yes. Yeah, that, that was Alina Chan writing that. Yeah. He's really been on this from very, very early on. Uh, I sort of stumbled across what she was writing about the origins of the virus, um, maybe April of May, or May of, of last year, somewhere in that neck of the woods. Um, yeah, and and given given that there really is no evidence for the natural origins hypothesis to sort of species jump. There just isn't. I mean, they haven't found any, you know, intermediary host species. And by God, they've looked. Mm. You know, the, the Chinese have sampled, you know, tens of thousands of animals and they just, they just haven't found it. 
Um, so the lab, lab origins hypothesis is is just by far the most likely. And yeah, I, I, I agree with that Daily Mail article, the very fact that the Chinese sought to cover it up. Um, and, and just, you know, side note, um, if you remember Event 201, one of the, one of the sort of uh, main um, uh, topics of discussion in Event 201 with this sort of simulated uh, worldwide coronavirus pandemic was how will we handle it if there are rumours that, that the virus originated from a lab leak? Mm. <laughs> Come on! <laughs> Yeah, and, showed your hand a bit there, didn't you? Yep. Okay. And okay. Now this ties back into um, what you were saying about um, Huxley and everything like that. Now, in the conspiracy circles I've dabbled in in the past, the the view was that they always tell you what they're going to do, and mm. this is, and that is just to see if the population is awake enough to oppose it. If they are, they won't bring it in. But nine times out of ten, they're not. And this is a perfect example. I mean, you, you spoke about um, Orwell and Huxley becoming, um, you know, fact rather than, than fiction. Um, you know, um, uh, like even Jules Verne, um, not saying that he's in the same league as, as um, the ones that want to take over the world and all or that even sort of stuff. Twenty thousand leagues. Yeah. Well. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Um, <laughs> that was a good. That yep. Um, so, but I mean, it, it, it's the thing is there. I mean, I think some had brilliant insight um, in, into mm. what could be done and and um, awareness of what's going on and what things that we need to avoid. I mean. Um, I'm a massive sci-fi nut and, um, you know, one of the things that I really, really liked the, the sci-fi shows was Battlestar Galactica and mm. the whole premise through that was that AI got too powerful for us and then realised that we were more of a blight on the planet than anything else so then they had to get rid of us to protect the planet and that, that uh, the whole thing was, um, you know, don't let the computers talk to each other and yet here we are creating all sorts of AI stuff Um Elon Musk, love him, hate him, doesn't matter. It, it's the comments that he says is that there should be some agreement on what we do with AI because if it gets on the battlefield, it is going to be another Terminator because they will just yes. turn around and say, no, we're not going to fight each other, we're going to fight you. And yeah. where do we go from that? And it's just, you know, is is Terminator a prophetic movie? Is Terminator telling us what's going to come next? Um and things like that. And, I mean, you, you can't have a rational discussion about that. Oh, no, that's a conspiracy. Oh, no, no, you're looking at sci-fi. That's never going to happen. Well, mm. Dick Tracy, you know, he's talking into his watch. Oh, no, you know, mm. and that, I mean, mm-hmm. and now you can do it today. So yes. what do we yes. do? Do we ignore any movie because it's science fiction or do we wake up and think, hey, maybe we are living in the Matrix or maybe we're – you know, something's going on um, and, and things like that. Um, but, yeah, it's just... So, yeah, God, there's so, there's so much. There's just so much in, in what you said. Let me, let me pull on just one thread. Actually, um, can I just pause that? Is, can I just mm. keep, keep that thread there? Understanding yeah. that there's so much, I've just had a look at the time because I had browsers in front <laughs> of the window. Are you happy to continue pulling that thread and then we will talk about the thing that you did want to talk about last and we'll get that going or do you just want to pull on the thread and leave that? I think I think it may even, 
I think there might be an intersection between that. Yep. Okay. So so let me okay. let me pull on this thread really really briefly though, and then I'll I'll kind of you know throw throw a, a, a reference that you can pop in the show notes and and your your listeners can follow up on it, and that is to look very closely at uh, the origins of of Hollywood, at the origins of the movie making uh, business. And its links with um, military intelligence, and not exactly a secret, uh, not a secret at all. And and the reference that I, I'd throw in there would be uh, Jay Dyer. Um, Jay Dyer has written a number of books, and he has you know an extensive website with tons and tons and tons of videos that are real deep dives into who's who in Hollywood and how the intelligence um, community is sort of basically, I wouldn't even say infiltrated Hollywood. Uh, they're, they're just, it, it's, it, you can't really tell where one ends and, and, and the other begins. I mean, even even the origins of, of James Bond, I mean, you know, Ian yeah, Fleming's Ian Fleming. grandfather, yeah, yeah, Ian Fleming's grandfather was um, you know, it was like a pretty, pretty high up position in um, the Dutch East India Company, which was the origins of, of British intelligence, of, of MI6. And so the James Bond character was very much based on um, real individuals. And you'll notice in the James Bond stories that the CIA is presented as being this, this force for good. So the Felix Leiter character um, in particular is uh, sort of the, the nice face of mm. the CIA. Okay, so so the James Bond franchise is all about inculcating the idea that the intelligence agencies are on the side of of the people. You know that that they really are all about protecting the interests of the British and the Americans, and you know basically the the West, mm. right? And the bad guys, the bad guys like Spectre, and and they're all kind of framed as 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 being obviously the franchise has progressed through the Cold War era, um. So you know you had the Ruskies being the bad guys, and you had individuals, you know, uh, organizations like Spectre, and and it's all this sort of distraction. Um, from the fact that the intelligence agencies are basically a criminal enterprise. Yep. I mean, the CIA um, makes its money out of drug running. Yep. <laughs> this is, this Air is America. very, very well documented, mm-hmm. extremely well documented. The CIA runs drugs. It's why they went to Vietnam. It's why they went to Afghanistan. There are other reasons, of course. Um, but they run drugs, and they took that business over from the Dutch East India Company, which, as I say, was the origins of MI6. And the Dutch East India Company ran drugs. They made the money out of opium, right? So they they, they picked up cotton from um, cotton and opium from India. They shipped the, the cotton to England for it to be woven into cloth. Um, they they and then they dumped the opium on China and of course when the the Chinese emperor resisted this, the uh, the British East India Company essentially um, uh, wiped out the, uh, the the Chinese Imperial Navy and and forced their opium product onto the Chinese people and that resulted in in you know what the the uh, Chinese called their century of shame century of humiliation I'm sorry. Um, and so, so the Dutch East India Company becomes MI6. Um, MI6 basically you know, creates and grooms 
the OSS, which then becomes the CIA. And the, the CIA becomes the, the property manager for the, uh, for the British Empire. So, again, I mean, Jay Dye is a wonderful, wonderful source on, on Hollywood and the role that Hollywood has played in, in uh, perpetuating this narrative that it's really good to have the CIA, you know, looking after everybody. <laughs> oh, and, my God. I mean, and it's the thing is that, you know, you have a look at all the, you know, the, the, the cop shows and, and all that sort of stuff. I mean, don't get me wrong, I love sitting down and watching them because, you know, I am, I think I'm aware enough to take it as entertainment, mm. though it's a thing is that it's always putting it in a good light. Um, you know, there's mm. um, SWAT, which talks about LAPD SWAT, SEAL Team, which talks about um, the Navy, um, sorry, yeah, Navy, Navy SEALs, um, one of the elite groups. All the different cop shows talk about all these elite groups as if they're there to do good rather than, yes. as we've seen by experience in Victoria, what the special operations group in Victoria does. It's not for good. It's to do the yeah. bidding of the government. That's exactly right. Whereas a lot of the sort of the regular, you know, beat coppers, um, they don't want to be doing this. Mm. They're, they, like they, they want to carry out community policing and, and that means, you know, catching the real bad guys, not people who aren't wearing their face nappy properly in, in, in a public place, mm. um, you know, outdoors while walking, yeah. <laughs> for God's yeah. sake. Yeah. So um, question everything. That's, that's, the, that's the moral of the story here. And, yeah, I think we, we do need to cast a very, very critical eye on what emerges from the culture industry because that is exactly what it is. It is a culture industry and the culture industry generates, you know, memes and, and memes and themes, I suppose, that shape people's understanding of the world they live in and, and their understanding of themselves. And, again, just, just to sort of hook back to this whole idea of, of teenage girls, suddenly deciding that that um, that they were born in the wrong body where, where did that come from where where did it mm. where did all of these bulimic girls like where did that come from they yep. sat down and they watched Princess Diana being interviewed and saying I've had this struggle with bulimia and and you know a thought which had never occurred to them before which is well I could stuff myself with food and then make myself throw up and and you know administer laxatives and whatever um that suddenly they started engaging in that behavior and they had not been doing that before again the, the classic instance of this is is the occurrence of it in in Fiji um I'm not saying that was linked to the Princess Diana thing again it was linked to them getting television mm. right so suddenly these girls are watching Melrose Place they're watching skinny white girls and they're looking at at, at, at their own bodies you know Polynesian bodies which are sort built of built differently you know, yeah yeah they're built diff. You know, they're, they're big Amazons. Mm -hmm. They're broad-shouldered and broad-hipped and, and they're magnificent. Mm -hmm. you know, they're not meant to be skinny little white folk. Um, yeah, and then suddenly these girls pop eating disorders. <laughs> Electronic altar is an evil thing. Mm. Yeah, and and just to, to go back to this this idea of, of AI and and uh, you've heard the the phrase "data is the new oil," right? Yes. So you know that's that's what uh, that's what they them knows are wanting to to hoover up now. It's 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 data, and 
the whole idea of the fourth industrial revolution, which, you know, speaking, speaking of Bond and Bond villains, I mean, <laughs> how is that Klaus Schwab? Mm. <laughs> he's, he's like your ultimate Bond villain. <laughs> yes, yes, <laughs> anyway, exactly. So, yep. so, so there's Klaus Schwab talking about the fourth industrial revolution and how we're going to be merging our biological and our digital identities and we're going to have, you know, brain chips and we're going to be plugged into this internet of bodies and all this sort of thing. And... Um, you know, during our first discussion, you 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 briefly discussed the idea of of sight uh, guys. Sorry, I, yeah, yes. I learned German, so I pronounce it German, which is sight. Um, so the the sight guys movement and the Venus Project and all of this, and I find that whole idea to be exceptionally dangerous, and it's just. It's it's technocracy. It's the it's the old technocracy wine, in a in a new bottle. You know, any any attempt to sort of systematize or organize human society and 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 the wider world, based on some you know invisible algorithm that's calculating just how much of any resource is needed by each individual at any point in time. Like that is so incredibly. Dangerous. Oh yeah, because I, I don't subscribe to that. Yeah. It's more about the idea of removing, moving from a resource-based economy to a technology-based one. Um, there are a lot of things in that movie that I disagreed with, and I'm, you know, yeah. out and open well, with that. The question is, who's who's in charge of the technology? Right, that's always yep. the question. Who's yep. in charge of the technology? And if we if we reject that model, then what what we're essentially saying is that. Humans, humans can self-organize, right? So we, we don't we don't need some technological overlord, whether that be AI or whatever the heck. Uh, we don't need daddy government to tell us how we can have sex mm. <laughs> and how to raise our children. <laughs> oh, um, yep. Mm. I mean, yeah, yeah, okay. I don't disagree with that at all. Um, but I mean, unless we move away from the resource-based society that that we're in now, there's always going to be someone that, or a group or um, or um, a group of individuals, beings, whatever, that is exploited. So how do we get past that if we don't move to a technology-based one? Mm. So, have you got time to go into it? That, well, I would I would actually really need to to think through the. Through, through that question that, that you just posed, but my my sort of immediate off the cuff answer is decentralization. Yes, yes. We need to decentralize. Yes, right. We need to move away from the centralized control of you know everything from electricity generation to food production to the the, the money supply. We need to decentralize. We need to reform communities. Mm-hmm. Communities of people who care about each other, communities of people who are connected with each other through geography, through family, through through faith, through through shared culture, through language. Like I don't, I don't even care. Um, there are all sorts of, of of ideas that people can form a community around, and in doing. Uh, in, in reforming community and in decentralizing, we we have the chance to unhook ourselves from this sort of giant technocratic machine that is that is trying to you know hoover us all up and basically homogenize us 
because that's really what's going on. Mm. Again, I'm going to ponder the, the, the question there, how, how can we avoid having this sort of exploited underclass? Um, but I, I think that in a truly decentralised society, uh, that, is, that is simply far, that, that is far less of a, of a hazard. Now, um, I'd, I would stress that in a decentralised society, this, this, is, this is not going to be completely equal um, yes, there will be hierarchy. Yep, people. understand that. There will be hierarchies yeah, and, and all that sort of are, stuff. Yep. Some people are better at certain things than others. Yep. And sorry, that's just an undeniable fact. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, and, and that's my view as well. I mean, you know, um, for, for want of a better term, um, you know, I have um, – it's going to be very soon fairly outspoken um, um, free market anarchistic views. Um, mm. I believe that yep. it can be done that way. Um, that we need to get government out of our bedrooms, out of our lives. The government cannot tell me how many people I can have in my house. The government can tell uh-huh. not tell me where I go to work, who I go to work with. The government cannot tell me who I can let in and who I cannot let in into my business. Um, we need to mm-hmm. respect private property rights and to do that, the individual needs to be able to enforce those rights and that yeah. comes down to something that um, people are shit scared in Australia to talk about because they're scared of Ned Kelly um, and, and everything like that. Uh, but, you know, it, it's the thing is that we can do that. We can, you know, if we get back to what they're doing now is the government's turning around saying, hey, you can exclude anyone that you want from your shop if they're not, you know, if you don't think they're clean. Well, that's fine. Mm. Let me bring it to the other people. I don't want to make that cake for people who have a particular um pastime habit that I don't agree with and you can't take mm-hmm. me to court because that's my right as a private business owner. Um mm-hmm. I I completely yep. uh, fully accept all that, fully agree with all of that. Um though you know it's and yes, you know being um uh, having a technologically or a technology um economy based view I don't think is um Contrary to the free market anarchistic views, because I think that the technology-based one is the ultimate end goal, the um, the free market anarchist view is what we're doing now. This is how we get from where we're going now. It may become that, hey, we all get together as a community and we use technology to help us. So then as a community, we can spend our time doing something else, whether it's mm. making the community mm. bigger. That's where I'm yeah. looking at it from. That's the, that's the point where, um, you know, like we won't need people in farms playing around the field and all that. We can just let the machines do it. So then we can spend it not, you know, not degrading that, that um, manual labour and all that sort of stuff and, and that's not mm-hmm. what I'm doing. It's just that um, we've only got 24 hours a day and yeah. if we yeah. can get the machines to do it, then we can focus on doing something else, building society, practising our faith um, creating the future generation, um, helping yeah. the current or the um, soon-to-pass generation. Um, there's all things that we can be that, that we could be doing if our time is no longer a resource because we're using technology as um, that way of helping that economy. Does that mm. does that make sense? Um, it, it does, and I, I'm just going to throw in there: um, humans 
like all other animal species, uh, really do have a, a need to be productive, mm. to engage in productive activity. Now, of course, the idea of you know, what is productive activity is a very broad definition of that. I mean, a, a parent who is staying at home to, to raise their, their children and, and to educate them at home, uh, that is an extraordinarily productive activity. A, a person who is uh, working in their community, you know, providing uh, providing food or shelter or, or you know, counselling to someone who is homeless or traumatised, that is an extraordinarily productive activity. So I'm not just talking about, you know, um, making widgets, mm. right, uh, getting getting paid to, to do something. Um, but so so I, I guess my my concern about the idea we're going to get the machines to do all the all the grant stuff is okay that's that's fine and I agree like there's a lot of human potential that we could free up if if, if a lot of that grant work was done by by machines as long as we don't take away people's um, capacity to engage in productive activity that and they the dignity personally meaningful and the dignity. Mm, yes. Yes, and and I mean, and that that's the ultimate thing that I'd be looking at. I mean, you know, in a in a you know in in my vision of a perfect world, all that stuff, you know, whether it's grunt work or not, I mean, you know, it's um, that labour intensive stuff can be done by the machine. So then, the the rest of the community can be either focused on building the community, learning from history so mm-hmm. the community doesn't do things that have happened in the past or whether it's, um, you know, I, I won't say evangelising other communities or anything like that. It's more about, um, you know, making the community stronger. I mean, I'm, I mean the, the more I look into what's going on these, with this woo flu, the more disgusted I am with the education system that they're spending more time sitting on their asses inside than actually getting out and doing any sort of physical activity, um, I think that um, the education minister and the chief health officer should be up on criminal charges for not pushing that for education from a public health oh, look benefit. At, look, at, look at what's um, happened to, to our kids. Our yes. kids have got fatter. Our kids are eating more junk. Our kids are far less physically active. And many, of course, are, are excluded from engaging in sport because yes. they haven't you know, had an experimental medical procedure yes so so in other words everything that we know increases one's risk for serious covid illness is is being uh, encouraged in in, yep. in our kids you know? yep and and <laughs> i mean it's the thing is that you know the the more we can build the the, the fitter we can make society the the more um uh, intelligent we can make society the more um i'm not going to say Community based in the in in the the view of community, not community based as in the view of socialism, where everything is done for the state. Mm-hmm. The more we can get the current community and our children into that, the stronger that that community becomes, and then the harder it will be for that community to be overrun by someone else. And this is what we mm-hmm. need to be doing. We need to be protecting our communities. Um, as yeah. much as I don't like what she says, Hillary said the the brilliant thing years ago, it takes a village to raise a child. We should be building that village to raise our children and then, you know, protect those children can protect that village and then, you know, raise other people's children. And, and that's what I would like to see um, it become. We use technology how we can use it um, mm. to benefit us, not to become reliant upon it. Like, you know, I'd, I'd yeah. love to see... A lot of stuff gone um, and all that, but 
you know. Um, so it's pe- only the people, people like to sort of poke fun at, at, at the Amish, but I think actually the Amish have a very, very sensible approach to this. When when a technology sort of comes to their notice, which they're not presently using, they have a they have a sort of meeting of the I don't know council of the elders or whatever the heck it is. They, they anyway they they have a town meeting, and they talk about this technology and and if the people generally agree that it might have benefits, they they do a trial run of it. So they actually test it out um, for for a limited period of time, and then at the end of that period of time, they they uh, again, you know, consult the community to figure out, well, did this generally improve people's quality of life or did it lessen people's quality of life? And if they found that it improves it, then they adopt it. Mm. So they're not, they're not sort of anti-technology. They're, they just take a very cautious view of technology because they are aware that um, there are unintended consequences of everything that, that we do. And if we just sort of blindly jump on every technological trend, then we end up being led by that technology into, into a place that, that we just could not anticipate. And I think, you know, the, the ultimate, the real hellscape is this picture of human beings in the metaverse. Like to me, oh, that, yeah. is, that is hellscape. Yep. So you've, you've been thrown out of your job by the machine um, you you are being paid your universal basic income in central bank digital currency. But if you want to earn a little extra, you can uh, and, and and you know the patent I'm talking about mm. this Microsoft patent where a person can earn cryptocurrency. They can mine cryptocurrency by performing certain tasks you know, assigned to them by a machine. So you sit at home in your metaverse performing these meaningless tasks um, and, and then you, you get rewarded with cryptocurrency, you know, like, like Skinner giving, giving food pellets yes. to his pigeons. Yes. I mean, absolute hellscape. Mm. Um, so, yes, I mean, I'm totally in agreement with you there with technology. I mean, we've got, Encyclopedias in our pocket, yet we're becoming dumber and dumber all the time. Um, yeah. So Very you know, true. it's it's a thing. Yes, I mean, you know, I'm hopefully I've sort of cleared the air up on on my views on you know not going fully down the zeitgeist part, but I just didn't know how else to describe it that people would understand. Mm. Um, so yeah, gotcha. Um, you know, yeah. that's yeah. hopefully we haven't disagreed too much on it, but um, that's that's how. And, I, and, and so. What if we did? It's yes. very productive. I am all for disagreement, right? Yes. I mean, you you put your your points on the table. I can, you know, I put my points on the table. You know, we we consider each other's point of view. If we disagree on something, we 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 could both learn. Yeah. Right? And great. so be it. The world right. still spins. We don't need to yeah. have tantrums on social media because oh no, someone disagreed <laughs> with me. It's like big deal. His words were violence. To yes. Me. Yeah. Um, but, uh, oh my god! Oh, don't get me started on that one. Um, but yeah, it's it's you know I think it's it's a big um, I, I with with what we're talking about now. I don't think we're mature enough to handle the technology we've got because yeah, the foundation isn't there. Yes, there is no solid foundation on how to because. It's it's that that what is that that meme that um, tough men produce good times, good times produce soft men, soft men, or whatever that that whole mm-hmm. thing is that that little cycle thing. I don't think yeah. that we've matured enough to the point where we can handle what we've got. 
Um, so mm. I think we haven't been as wise as the Amish. We haven't no. sort of said, you know what, let's give this a trial run and and see whether it really works. And if it doesn't, well, we'll just stop using it. No, that that has not happened. We've and and you know because of that, we've been sucked into this vortex of a technologically driven world. I mean, you know, I'll give you an example. And God, I hope my daughter doesn't listen to this. <laughs> so, um, on on our way to the Van Gogh um, um, exhibition in in Brisbane yesterday, you know, on the on the train, um, I took a book. I actually took John Talagato's book, which uh, sadly I, I have a stack of books on my bedside table, and I, I get so little time for reading. By the time I get into bed at night, I read two pages, and I'm like, oh, my eyelids are closing. Yeah. So yeah. I took John Talagato's book on the on the train, and so you know we settled in comfortably. I whipped out a book, and my daughter says, oh, you came prepared, didn't you? I must start reading again, but but it hadn't occurred to us. So she got out her phone and started playing this game of involving, I don't know. Um, Little digital creatures living uh, in a little digital world. Uh, and this was a kid who a couple of years ago um, was writing the most extraordinarily uh, uh, imaginative fiction and drawing amazing artworks. And anyway, so I'm, I'm, I'm hoping now that she's finished you know, that dreaded thing called school, um, that will be able to encourage her back into, you know, creating a life of, of, of her own rather than, you know, just sort of being tube-fed. Oh, well, good luck <laughs> with that. And gastric tube-feeding of this digital app. <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, yeah, I, yeah, it's the thing. The, the more I look at it and the more I see what's going on, we're not mature enough to, to handle any of the things that we've got. And, you know, I, I think maybe we need um, who is that alien from the day the Earth stood still, come back down and just do a massive air impulse around the planet, get us back to the away from technology, get us back to the. Cameron, are you saying we need a great reset? Um, <laughs> I'm sorry, I couldn't reset. Actually, <laughs> no, we need a reboot. We need a great reset. No, yeah, reboot, that's better. We need that's a better. reboot. Yep. So we need mm. to start again. Yeah. Because yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we, we need a reboot because all a reset does is just changes the factory settings. I think we need to reboot yeah. the whole system. Go, go, back to, go back to original settings. Yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah go yeah, back, yeah. decentralisation, yeah. focus more on um, the, the, the family unit, whether it's the, the new – I personally believe it should be the extended family unit. Focus more on that. Focus on communities. Mm. I mean, I mean mm. shit, look, um, you're, you're Gold Coast. I've spent what nearly – two hours on the phone to you now, um, and yet yeah. I haven't spent 10 minutes in the last two months talking to my neighbour. Um, and, hey, you know what, I'll admit, yep, that's my fault as much as my neighbour's fault, but it's the society that we live in. Um, yeah. And it's, it's something that I really notice when spending time on our, on our property, um, which is, you know, in a, in a more rural area, that those those conversations with with neighbors and, and you think wow how's that going to happen when you're on five acres well yeah because you you know you walk along the, your your fence line and there's your neighbor kind mm. of you know riding his bike or driving driving his his ute down the down down his sort of access road and um and he's, you know, he stops his car and hops out and has a yak. Yep. And it actually lasts longer than than here in the burbs yep. where I might see my neighbour out on the street. So, yeah, there's, there's this sort of interesting inversion of what you would expect where in the more rural areas um, people 
are actually more community-minded. And they're probably more family-minded too because it is generational, especially when you get to some of the bigger properties. It's generational properties and it's it's, um, not, you know, where... Where in the in the burbs or the inner cities, where it's just okay, how is this area going to benefit me? Rather than how can I benefit the area as they do out in the burbs? Oh, sorry, out in at rural, and in um, generational farms and things like that. Yeah, yeah. Mm. There's there is there is that connection. Uh, there's that connection to 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 land and to the community. Um, around you know that, that that land is situated in. Mm. yeah mm. It's a very oh, different way of thinking right. about ourselves and where we stand yeah before we start yeah. talking anything else i think i might end it there otherwise we're Let's just going to keep going so before we go um <laughs> tell everyone where you are on social media where they can find you um and hunt you down and um criticize the things that you post on social media and all that sort of stuff <laughs> Hop on my post and start a start a Twitter stat. Yeah. Okay, so uh, I am on Facebook. Just uh, well, I I have my my business page Empower Total Health on Facebook, and then I have my personal profile, which is just my name, Robin Tudor. That's C H U T E R. I'm not hard to find because you know, my my last name is very uncommon. Um, on Twitter, I'm at Empowered Robin. I don't, as I said, I don't spend a lot of time on Twitter, but I I do post there. And I, you know, have a look at what other people are sharing around the web because, you know, there there, there are some whack jobs on Twitter. Mm-hmm. There are also some very, very smart people, you know, scientists and doctors and so forth that are, are very interesting. And I have a Telegram channel. It's called COVID Truth Bombs. And I post links to articles by really, really smart people. So it's not, it's not just like sharing memes and videos and stuff. It, 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 it's the real juicy gear. And... I'm on Substack, so you can follow my my Substack again. If you just hop on Substack and look for my name, Robin Tudor, you will find it quite easily there. And then there's my website, empowertotalhealth.com.au, and you can sign up to my newsletter list. Um, I don't spam people, but I do send out a weekly newsletter that's got some interesting and valuable stuff in there, including my, my weekly article, which I publish on Substack. And uh, thank you for that. I will be including oh, no, links. I'm on, I'm on Odyssey. I'm on Odyssey oh. too under Empower Total Health. But I, I do not I do not do a lot of video. It's not a medium that I really love. See, that was going to be another thing. Oh, see, Odyssey or Rumble. It's just like, ooh, that's another one to go down. Um, both. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah. Everything I'm seeing, probably Odyssey is better than Rumble because I think Rumble's selling mm. out. Um, but, yeah, I'll leave that one for another time. Um, mm. So, yeah, there will be all links to that in the show notes when I get motivated to write them out. Um, okay. So thank you for joining me here, Robin. Um, hope everyone has found this one entertaining and not just two people rambling. Uh, as usual, if you've me got yeah, if you've got any comments, <laughs> we did have a ramble. Yeah, feel free to um, email me or leave a comments on the uh, podcast on the show notes when that comes out. But um, that will be all mentioned in the other bit. Um, are we going to do this again? I'm up for it. As long as your audience isn't sick of the sound of my voice, I am very happy to speak again. Oh, I think they'll get sick of mine before they get sick of yours. <laughs> Um, so yes alright thanks for having me here and we'll um, set up a time to do another one sounds like a plan alright thanks a lot thanks for inviting me Cameron bye and that wraps up that um, part three of that uh, series Um, actually I won't say it's a series I think it's going to be a regular occurrence 
um, looking forward to uh, continuing discussions with Robin, um, hopefully in the next week or two, um, just depending if we can get uh, times to match up and all that sort of stuff. Uh, but anyway, you'll find any show notes on this at um, the fifth.estate forward slash episode 25. Um, website again, the fifth.estate forward slash episode 25. Uh, so thanks for listening. My name's Cameron Blewett and look forward to having you join me on the next one. Bye for now.